This is the Brian Thomas Crop podcast, and I am Brian Thomas Crop. Thank you for being here. Uh, I believe that there is tremendous power for good in stories, and so I write them and I like to share them with you. Uh, we have been just now starting a new story, which is a novel that I wrote a couple years ago called Showdown in the Yukon. And on the other side of this chapter, there are several Easter eggs that I would like to uh, go into a little bit more detail with you on about uh, just kind of what goes into the brain that comes out into characters and stories and those kinds of things. I think you're going to find that interesting, um, but we will uh, read the story, uh, read the chapter, chapter two, and then uh, get into those Easter eggs right after a word from this week's sponsors. I also wanted to let you know that Sabrina Cubbins and Mr. Alexander's Pottery Palace is now out in audiobook form. If you listen to the chapters as they came out on this podcast, but would like them all without all of my commentary and all that stuff, uh, then you can just swing over to my author page on Amazon or check them out at audible.com and you can get your very own copy of the audiobook version of Sabrina Cubbins and Mr. Alexander's Pottery Palace. Uh, there's an audiobook too there, uh, Fish Tales. You can grab that too. Uh, if nothing else, you can let other people know if they are more of uh, audiobook people that it's there. You can also leave a review over there on Amazon or Audible as well. That would be much appreciated too. Well, enough of me talking about that. Now on to this week's chapter. Chapter 2 Long about noon the next day, as Monterey sent hot plates of food to the inn's guests, he spied through his window a wagon rolling through the street. This was no ordinary wagon either, at least not by Good and Gulch standards. Most wagons traveling through Good and Gulch were the ramshackle kind, with rotting wood, wobbly wheels, and pulled by a scrawny horse in desperate need of shoeing and a bag of oats. No, this wagon flashed a bright glossy green, festooned with brass fixtures, winking and glimmering in the sunlight. Two horses, looking as fresh as any horse could look, pulled this contraption up the main street. It seemed vulgar against the humble Good and Gulch buildings. A fool and his money, Monterey muttered with a shake of his head and continued to distribute the meals. He'd seen this kind of thing from time to time. It amused him, but not in a funny way. It was always some high and mighty big shot wanting to try his hand at gold prospecting. They were never in it for the money, more in it for the adventure of it, best as Monterey could guess. The big shot would waste some money in town, find a handful of worthless rocks, and go back to his real home to tell his city friends all about his days in the gold fields of California. It was a short adventure for the big shot, and Monterey liked to see how much money the fool could get and how fast Monterey could extract it. As far as he could figure, a tale of petty crime in the gold fields of California would provide a better storytelling opportunity once the big shot was back where he belonged. Monterey quickly wrapped up his duties and made his way to the lobby to see if he could get a gander at the wagon's occupants. Before he could get there, a large hand slapped down on his shoulder and spun him around. Monterey freed himself quickly, stepped back, crouched down, and put up his fists. Though he was a mere 17 years of age, Monterey had seen more than enough of his share of scrapes with roughnecks in this town and others. He could deal out punches as well as he could take them. Ah, do declare, 
said the man who stood opposite Monterey. What a strapping young man you've turned out to be, sir. The man wore a linen suit that was clean as a whistle in spite of the dust that covered every inch of the town. He wore a wide-brimmed hat with a pheasant's feather tucked into the band. A waistcoat of burgundy covered a crisp shirt, slender belly, and decorated by a polished brass watch chain strung between its two small pockets. The man's shoes were glossy black. In his left hand, he clutched a pair of calfskin gloves and a pearl-handled cane. On his face, he wore a toothy smile framed by a grand mustache on top and a groomed chin puff below. If the man had not physically laid his hands on Monterey, he would have sworn this was a mirage, because Monterey never dreamed he would ever set his eyes on this man again in this life. "'Mac?' Monterey said through unbelieving eyes. "'Mac Sutherland?' "'In the flesh,' Mac said with a small bow. "'I'd heard you might be down in these parts, and I couldn't help myself but to stop in and see if I couldn't give my warmest regards to an old friend.' Monterey straightened himself, relaxed, and wondered what sort of gift Mac's presence was. Calling him a friend was not a lie, but it was not quite the truth, either. "'I'm only in town for a day or two, depending on a few business details,' Mac continued. "'As it so happens, I'm on my way to the Yukon to reunite a widow with her deceased husband's wealth. Sounded like the exact kind of adventure that would suit you to a T, so I thought whilst I was here in the area, I should nose you out and see if you are up for a bit of travel and treasure hunting.' Monterey's head was spinning. He wanted to ask what on earth Mac was talking about, but before he could get any words out, Mac had slung his free arm around Monterey's shoulders, guided him into the dining area, and sat him at a table. Paps Montgomery paused at the piano and eyed Monterey before continuing to play ragtime on the sourly tuned instrument. I'll need to get back to... Monterey started. Of course, of course, Mac said. This will only take the merest hint of a moment, he leaned in. Do you remember the scams we used to run in Sacramento? Remember them? Just at the mention of the town, Monterey wanted to bolt from the table right then and there. He did not want to make a scene and chose to keep his clenched jaw closed and nod politely. Well, two things you should know from the start, Mac continued, oblivious to Monterey's discomfort. The first is, I've left the ways of the confidence artist. I know it's hard to believe, but I have had a complete change of character since we last worked together, and I'm seeking to help other unfortunate souls with whatever energy I can the rest of my days here on this mortal coil. This kind of talk was as common as air when it came to Max Sutherland. He was usually three-quarters hogwash and only one-quarter truth, but that one quarter was often worth it. Monterey shifted his weight in the chair and listened on, though he could only see Pap's back, Monterey saw his boss's suspicions rise by the second. Secondly, Max said, would you believe I found a legitimate version to our old scam? See, instead of me trying to get someone to invest in a gold mine that doesn't exist, I found a lady who has an actual gold mine. How do you know she isn't playing you? Monterey shot back. Scoundrels wear petticoats too, you know. Mac chuckled, quite amused and delighted. You'd have to meet her. You know that saying, it takes a thief to catch a thief? Trust me, she is not a thief. This lady is as straight as a ruler. Plus, I've done a little reconnaissance of my own into her tale through my associates up north, and all of the necessary details seem to be in order. 
What I need is a first-rate pickpocket whose fingers can find their way into some specific nooks and crannies to retrieve a certain claim document proven the mine is rightfully hers and not the scallywag who currently has residency on the property. Max smiled with ease, his immaculate teeth showing off all their glory. What do you say, Monterey? I'm sure your cut of the proceeds will be more than sufficient for you to forge whatever kind of life you fancy for yourself these days. The two men sat looking at each other for a moment or two. I'm thinking there's more to this opportunity than you're telling me, Monterey said. No, Max said, holding up his hands like a magician, proving there is no trick coming. Everything is as innocent as a brand new baby. The only bond is, I need to know today, in the morning at the very latest, whether you are in or out. We traverse north in the morning, provided certain repairs are made to our wagon today. Monterey slumped back into his chair and stared at his once friend for a long time without saying a word. It was true they had gone on several memorable adventures together. It was true that Monterey had made and lost a lot of money on those adventures. But it was also true, having only narrowly avoided prison time in Sacramento because of Mac, Monterey had no desire to find out how the inside of a jail cell in the Yukon looked. At the same time, there wasn't anything in Good and Gulch for him. The days were safe and predictable, certainly, but they were also often as dry and flavorless as the street outside. Maybe an adventure would put some fire back into his belly to discover what he wanted to do with his life. Back and forth his thoughts went until he remembered that every time he had decided by his gut, he had almost always been proved correct. All he had to go on with this scenario was his gut. His gut said there were few benefits and a thousand problems. There was no way to prove out Mac's too-good-to-be-true claims before going all in. No, he concluded with a sense of clarity in his soul, he had cut professional ties with anything even resembling crime and confidence games. He was on the straight and narrow from now on. Monterey and his gut were perfectly fine with that decision. Good and Gulch was where he was, and that would have to be good enough. I'm sorry, Mac, Monterey said finally. It all sounds interesting, but I've put that part of my past where it belongs. Monterey stood up and extended his hand. Sorry you came all this way for nothing. "'Twas not for nothing, my friend. As I said, we were passing through the area anyway," Mac said, shaking Monterey's hand. "'No hard feelings.' Mac placed his thumb and forefinger in the pocket of his vest and fished out a lump of what appeared to be gold and placed it on the wood next to Pap's keyboard. Paps immediately stopped playing. "'Thanks for letting me pull the ear of your employee, my good sir.' Paps picked up the nugget and bit down on it and smiled. "'Any time!' He smiled and placed the nugget in his pocket. The gold piece did its job and got Monterey's attention. Well, we are spending the night here in this fine establishment. Perhaps we shall bump into one another a time or two before we head out, Max said. That would be great, Monterey replied, though he did not mean to sound so enthusiastic about it. Max started toward the staircase leading up to the rooms. How about we meet later tonight after dinner, Monterey heard himself say. He was sure he would regret this, but wanted to show some kindness to his friend. There's going to be music and maybe dancing after dinner is over. Might be the last bit of fun you have before you finish your trip. Mac turned, visibly grateful. That does sound divine. I'll check with my client. Perhaps we shall meet later on. I would still love for you two to meet. With that, Mac Sutherland bowed slightly, turned on his heels, and headed up the stairs. Monterey, lost in his thoughts of the past, watched him go. A friend of yours? Paps asked. I'm not sure, 
Monterey said, before shoving his hands in his pockets and heading back to the kitchen. All right, so in this chapter, we are introduced to... Um, Really, it's one of my favorite characters that I've ever written, uh, Max Sutherland. And he, gosh, where did he come from? There was uh, a time when uh, my wife and I were trying to find names for uh, one of our children, and we were having a really difficult time. With We now have four children, and each time it has been the full nine months to try to figure out what we're going to name uh, these these new people, and um, where where we were at this particular moment when we came up with the name Max Sutherland, we were kicking around all kinds of names for uh, our kid. One of them was I had a choir director in high school who thought that me or my brother should name one of our kids Cash so that they would be cash crop because we're from an agricultural world. And I thought, well, that's fun and funny. And that means that that joke is going to plague that kid for the rest of their life. And they're either going to have to be the coolest kid that you've ever met in your life or their toast. So we're kind of, but we also really like the name cash crop, like just to be called cash would be kind of cool. So we, we couldn't really do it. So then we're sitting at an intersection and behind us is a giant Mack truck. And in front of us was this hardware store, old school hardware store called Sutherland's. And we thought, oh, Max Sutherland, that'd be a, that'd be a cool name. Max Sutherland crop would be a great name for a kid. Um, but we couldn't pull that one off either. So I ended up just stealing that name whole cloth and throwing that into uh, the story. In my mind, uh, Max Sutherland is this very Southern gentleman, and that's how I was hearing him in my head when I was typing away. And so when I was recording this uh, audio for a potential audiobook for the story, that's why he has such this grand, aristocratic, Georgian-type Southern accent that I'm probably destroying because I'm not from there. Um, but then in my head, he also looks sort of this uh, mix of Colonel Sanders from uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and this character that Tom Hanks played in a movie called The Lady Killers. Uh, and in that movie as well, uh, Tom Hanks's character is rather verbose and uses 50,000 words when three would work and all of that. So it all kind of uh, mixed and mingled in there. Um, so that's sort of where the germ of where uh, the character of Max Sutherland uh, comes from. And every time I got to write him into this story, it was just fun coming up with these very flowery uh, sen sentences. The other thing that showed up in this chapter that I want to uh, just give a brief uh, shout out to was the line about the merest hint of a whisper. There was a friend of mine who lives in Scotland. Well, he's from Scotland. I think he lives in England proper now. Uh, but he would always talk about uh, giving something the merest hint of a whisper as like that is the smallest thing he could come up with of a measurement was the merest hint of a whisper. Uh, so we threw that in there as well. Uh, the uh, folks from Scotland tend to also be very great 
with both the quality of their words and the amount of them. So that was a a nod to uh, my friend from Scotland. So Scotty, that one was for you. Um, If you enjoy the showdown in the Yukon or any of the other stories that I've shared on this podcast, you can find all the links to those uh, here in the show notes for this episode. You can also swing over to Amazon Google, like Google, you can't Google an Amazon, but you can Amazon, I guess, uh, anything with Brian Thomas Crop, and you'll find all the books there. Um, if you like this podcast, uh, please give it a rating and review and all the things that you're supposed to do with these things and share it with friends uh, that you think would enjoy uh, a chapter of a story arriving uh, on their phone or their device every week. Uh, we're, I'm glad that you're here listening. And until next time, I hope you have a great week.